Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the first chapter of the book of the Revelation? That was a beautiful special. And if you have your books, of course, we're going to refer to those in just a moment. But <clears throat> this is the big event, the glorious appearing of our Lord. And any skilled storyteller or any story writer who has any degree of, of uh, talent has the ability to keep the reader in suspense right to the very end. And uh, of all of those who do this and, and do it in a classical way, of course, would be Charles Dickens. And you read and you wonder, will this young, uh, beautiful girl have to place her lovely, warm hand into the hand of this old, chalky face, clammy, cold hand of this old man? And uh, as you read, the reader is just sort of suspended, wondering, how is this thing going to turn out? And a great storyteller has the ability to do that because they're masters of suspense. And of course Dickens would be one of the better ones. And when you can no longer restrain yourself, what do you do? You go to the back of the book and you read how it's going to turn out because you can't wait to get there. God, however, in an amazing way, as he prepares his pen, so to speak, to write the 66th book of the Bible, the canon of Scripture. He instructs John, and John will be allowed to use his own personality, but he will need a lot of divine help because there will be symbols and there will be uh, animals and things that John is just not familiar with. And so using the best that he has he will be inspired to be able to put it all down. But as he begins, as, as God begins the last book through John exiled on the Isle of Patmos, it's like the Holy Spirit of God comes to him and says, John, go ahead and tell them. Go ahead and tell them up front. Tell them the good part, John. You don't have to wait till the end. And so... With that said, we have it all right here in the first chapter, beginning in verse number 7. This is the summation of it. This is what's going to happen throughout the book. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. And amen means, so be it. Verse 8, I am Alpha, the beginning, and Omega, the end, and I would add I'm everything in between too. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now we have sung a lot of that in our song selections tonight. Uh, those will, who will see him, will, among that crowd will be those who pierced him, those who put him to death. And so John goes ahead in the very first chapter and he tells you how the book is going to end before he even writes it. Now the phrase, a glorious appearing, does not appear in the book of the Revelation. But if you'll turn back toward the, the front of your Bible, just a couple of pages to Titus chapter 2, 
you will see where it does appear, and it is outlined very succinctly so we can understand what this phrase means. It's not to be confused with the first coming, of course, and it's not to be confused with the rapture of the church, but this is the second coming of Christ. There are 325 scriptures that tell about this. All but three of the New Testament books talk about this. It is the most well-publicized event in the entire Word of God. As though God was on every other page encouraging you and encouraging me not to be despondent, not to fall into despair, not to worry too much about the bad times that are seemingly settling on our culture, and not to be the prophet of gloom and doom. And sometimes we preachers are, are cast that way if we tell the truth, but it's pretty bad out there. It's pretty bad. It's getting worse. I haven't been uh, a student in a university since the 70s, but we never dreamt anybody come on campus and shoot a bunch of us. But it's a real problem now to the point of expending millions of dollars in, in resources to try to prevent the human depravity problem. And there is no security system that will stand against human depravity. And it's getting worse and worse. But throughout the pages of Scripture, God says, Hold on. Hold on. Sort of like that old song by Sam and Dave. Hold on, I'm coming. <laughs> and if you don't know that song, I pity you and your musical taste. You're just so limited. You need to expand on that a little bit. But uh, In verse 13 of chapter 2, we read these words. Looking for that blessed hope. And you might, wanna, you might want to... Uh, uh, underline that and circle that. And the glorious appearing, underline those two as well, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's read the rest of it. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Iniquity is, is the sins we commit willingly, deliberately, uh, premeditated. It's just our doing our thing and, we're, and nobody's going to tell us anything different. We're going to do what we want to do. That's iniquity. And so he took care of our iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Well, I think he accomplished that, don't you? Just look around tonight. Look around. Peculiar people. So that's us. That's what we're described as. So we can't get around it. That's not exactly what that means. And I wish the, the latter part was true. Zealous of good works. A lot of zeal to do the right thing no matter what. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. The operative words, verse 13, uh, the uh, glorious appearing. Very, very important. Now, let's take our little books. If you've got your book tonight, you had some stuff to do here by way of a little uh, assignment. Beginning on page number 70 and going through page 73, the glorious appearing, as I said, 325 prophecies about the second coming. We believe one of the best ways to appreciate the significance of Christ's return is to read the scriptures that pertain to his return. So we're going to look at some of them as I'm going to go with you. And we're going to answer some of these questions tonight that appear on your book. If you fill them out, we'll see if you fill them out right. See if you did this correctly. And also be edified in so doing. But um, the question, uh, question number one up here, the first one asks this question. When will the glorious appearing take place? Now, we couldn't say this about the rapture because there are no signs connected to the rapture. Just sounds. The trumpet sounds, and before we realize it, we're there. 
It's that fast. But now the second coming, there are certain signs that are uh, connected to and enjoined to the second coming or this glorious appearing of Christ. And what are they? Well, in Matthew 24, verse 29, the, the glorious appearing will take place immediately after the tribulation period is over. When it concludes, he'll be back. And now when will that happen? Seven years after the rapture. And when will that happen? Any moment. Any moment it could take place. Another question. What miraculous signs will occur at this time when the glorious appearing does in fact take place? Well, there will be, according to Matthew twenty-four twenty-nine, cosmic phenomena which will occur in the sun. There will be changes in the moon. And there will be changes in the stars. Stars will fall. It's always given me the creeps to see a falling star or a shooting star. Some people like that. They say, you know, make a wish. Well, I wish you wouldn't do this anymore because it upsets me, you know. Because I've always been bothered by that for some reason. Because I know that in my tiny, finite mind, I have no, no adequate comprehension as to the size of a star. I know a little bit about the sun, but a star... I mean, this is so far removed from where we are and just, just blazing across the, the horizon of space. But literally, they will fall in that day. And, uh, boy, it's going to be a traumatic day for a lot of people who've put off that decision they should have made. Another question, what will the people on earth see? And how will they respond to what they see? Well, the, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven will be seen by everyone on earth. No one will miss it. Now, how will that be? Because if He comes in the east, then that means the people in the far west will be on the other side of this, this planet we call earth, and they won't get to see it. I'm not exactly sure who His tech crew is, but they're going to wire it up. It's possible now for everybody on earth who has the down link or the hookup or whatever to see something going on in the, in the, by way of the event. The Olympics is forthcoming, and <clears throat> if they can keep the torch lit, but uh, you're going to see a lot of stuff that uh, worldwide people will be viewing that. So we've almost pulled that possibility into reality where we can say, well, that can be done now. But every eye will see him. Uh, they will see him for who he is, by the way. And uh, not only that, uh, Christ will gather his elect at that point in time. And so it's not just going to be uh, something that somebody will hear about and it'll be secondhand information. They will witness it firsthand and they will know who he is. That's the thing. Every Christ denying atheist will know it's Jesus. Every Christ-denying intellectual or professor, they'll know it's Jesus. Every Baptist who didn't really get it straight will know it's Jesus. First, everybody disappears by the millions who know Christ. And now he appears seven years later. And it's all real. It's, it's really real. It's really real. What was preached to me as a child is really real. What I've preached to your children is really real because we went by the script of the book here. So <clears throat> that's what people will see. Now the next question here according to your book on page 71 is uh, how, will, uh, how will Christ appear? Well the scripture says heaven will open. Now what exactly does that mean? I don't have a clue. Heaven will open. 
and Christ will appear on a white horse. That's a bigger thing to explain than the heavens opening. When it opens, you can see a guy suspended in midair on a white horse. But that's how it's going to happen. And people say, you know, it's intellectual suicide to believe stuff like that. Better intellectual su suicide than spiritual suicide, I always say. I believe it, even though I don't understand it. I haven't the first clue how electricity works, but I like this light in here tonight, don't you? I don't know how a telephone works, and a lot of them don't, quite frankly. But I use mine whenever I need it, and it's a wonderful modern convenience. I'm not sure I fully understand the workings of a, a combustion engine but I'm going to enjoy the car when this is over to get me my mile point three back to the house. So see, there's a lot of things we don't understand that we embrace and we enjoy. Spiritually speaking, always start with a big God. He can do anything. I know what I used to be. If He can save me, He can ride a white horse in midair. That's my Savior. That's what I believe. Now... Let me go to the next question, and that is simply this. Uh, who will be with Christ when He returns? Well, that's, this is the good news for you and me. And uh, it, it simply stated, according to Revelation uh, 19, verse 14, uh, He will be followed by the armies of heaven, prepared to judge the ungodly. In fact, we are described in other verses as the saints of God, the church, if you please. In fact, let's take a quick look at that. Let's go to Revelation chapter 19. This is some of the most exciting reading anywhere to be found in the Word of God. It's all wonderful, but this is really exciting. And this is the church. These are the people who were raptured. Hopefully you. And I can tell you I'm going to be because of His grace. Verse number 6 in... Verse uh, in chapter number 19. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And who is his bride, ladies and gentlemen? The church. Exactly. Since Pentecost we believe until now. And his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now, let's just pause here for a moment and let's analyze this. If you're going to battle, and he is going to battle, we'll read that in a few more verses, you don't dress in white. Soldiers wear either a camouflage, if they're, or if they're, they're serving in the Middle East, where it's basically a sandy white background. It's a much lighter camouflage. The, 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 the boots are even much lighter than it would be, let's say, for some of our boys who fought in Vietnam or Korea or World War II. Uh, usually, the, 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 what they're wearing has something to do with the surroundings they're going to be doing battle in. Well, nobody would go out on white because white, don't, don't you remember what your mama told you? And can you believe this? They bought me white buckskin shoes for Easter. You know how long they stayed white? Easter night, they're trashed, man. And everything else I had, they put white on me because I, I was just a normal kid, you know. But think about this. Why is it we're going to be dressed in white? And, and he is too, to some extent. 
Because later we'll see that there's some changes made. Well, there's a reason for it. Let's, let's read a little bit farther. Verse 9. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, they are the true sayings of God. These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, that is an angel. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me, worship God. You know, we actually outrank the angels in one way. We know what it is to have the shed blood of the Lord Jesus applied to our lives, and they'll never know because they've never been lost. We know what it is to be depraved, lost, blind, wretched, aliens, just separated from the, the covenants of God, and then to be enjoined through that adoption that I talked about last week, and then the adaptation that followed the adoption. So we got a story to tell. Dr. Lagan used to say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to get a crowd of angels and set them down over there under a tree and tell them what it's like to be saved. Well, I'm sure they already know on a, for a second-hand point of view, but they'll never know uh, personally. And so he says here, worship uh, Jesus. Uh, this, for Jesus is this, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, verse 11, here we go. And I saw heaven opened. Well, I, we talked about that a moment ago. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. These are some of the names you guys were looking for in your little uh, workbook tonight. Faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now that's what we're going to be wearing, though we're going to Armageddon to the battlefield. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. The sword is to destroy the enemies of Israel and of Christ. The rod of iron is to maintain justice after he sets up his millennial kingdom. The sword first, because there's no other way to do it. They've got to be exterminated. And then with the rod of iron, he will rule, and it will be a paradise on earth. Verse 15 again, the sharp sword, that he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he that treadeth on the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now anybody who's going out to battle will have a sword strapped to his thigh. But he doesn't. And anybody going with him to a battle that is estimated to involve the death of 200 million people in the valley of Armageddon. 200 million who have opposed Israel. Who have gathered there for the purpose of doing away, can I say it? To initiate the final solution for those troublesome Jews. That's what Hitler called it, the final solution. If you've never been to Washington to the Holocaust Museum, you ought to go. And like the one in Israel, there's page after page on these directories of where every Jew lived in Europe. They had their name and address, and they were just, it was just a matter of time. They were going to get rid of all of them because Hitler was such a demon-possessed fool. By the way, one day he'll kneel with mute lips and honor Christ. Not unto salvation, 
but he'll acknowledge him for who he is. Well, let me answer the question. First of all, the man who goes forth with this name written on his thigh without a sword is because the sword is the words out of his mouth. He doesn't need one strapped to his thigh. And we don't have to worry about the cleanliness of our wardrobe because we're not going to be doing any fighting. He's going to do it all with the words that proceed from his mouth. We'll simply witness it. We won't get to do any of the killing. We'll just see it done. And he will be efficient, according to Zechariah. Because he will open his mouth and speak. And as he speaks, those who oppose Israel and Christ, those who are bearing the mark of the beast, they will be subjected to what is probably accurately described as a thermonuclear blast. Their eyes will literally melt in their eye sockets. Their tongues will melt in their mouths. They will be dead before they realize they've been attacked. It's that fast. It's that powerful. The word. Same word we have here. This is in printed form. He will speak it. He is the word of God. And it will all be over before it gets started. And as to the carnage and the blood, people have asked questions about that. Really, will the blood flow to the horse's bridle? Because I don't know in, in terms of measuring the height of a horse, but I'd say a horse would be, the bridle would be about here. Is that somewhat accurate, Brian? That valley is 200 miles long. There's going to be enough blood to, to elevate the blood to that height for 200 miles. Well, keep in mind, God always had a solution for his people who were wicked and wayward and, and uh, people who had no time for him and people who would not follow him. The incorrigibles of the Old Testament were stoned to death. Even the kids, if the kids wouldn't obey the parents and they were incorrigible, they, would not, uh, they wouldn't listen, they'd just stone them to death. A little harsh. I wouldn't have made it past third grade. But uh, God's going to do that in the Valley of Megiddo. At the same time that He speaks to them with such a forceful word, hailstones, 50 pounds in weight, will be falling upon those people. That water, as it melts, will elevate the height of that blood. It'll be to the horse's bridle. We know that the, the birds, the carnivorous birds, will eat for seven years. Seven-year snack at the compliments of the Antichrist and all of his hordes. So it is an incredible thing that is coming our way. And I've gotten somewhat off point tonight a little bit. But let's look at a few more of these questions and then we'll move on to something else as we consider. I'll just pick a few of them if you don't mind. Um, let's say uh, number... Well, on the top of page 72, let's move over there. With whom will Christ do battle? I think I've answered that pretty good, but if you want the reference, it's Revelation 19, 19. The beast, Antichrist, and all of his armies that he's collected from the east and the west, they've all gathered there. You can believe there will be a, a majority Islamic faction in that valley, but they won't be the only ones. Uh, if we're still around, I wouldn't be surprised if America isn't stupid enough to go fight the Jews too. Uh, that's the thing that bothers me about all these candidates. They're not saying a thing about the Jews. Listen, America's only as stable as it is friendly to God's chosen people. Do you understand that? He doesn't need us. 
But he said, I will bless them that bless you. And now is the time to be a blessing to Israel because it is a very uncertain signal we're sending. So who knows what's going to happen. But in that valley that day, they'll all be gathered from east to west. And then Jesus will come out of the skies just at the point when the Jews have fled to Petra. And it looks like it's finally over, the final solution to these troublesome Jews. And you'll see coming out of the sky... This white horse and he that is on it. And hordes and hordes of people behind him. Which is the church, the bride of the Lord Jesus. Coming to the valley of Jezreel. If you ever get to go there. I'm sure your tour will include going on top of Mount Carmel. Where Elijah withstood the prophets of Baal. But from there you have the most beautiful. uh, Just panoramic view. And such a scenic view of the valley of Jezreel. And if you've got a good tour guide. They'll tell you about Deborah and Barak as they had that chariot fight and it rained all of a sudden and the chariots just bogged down those 900 chariots down in the bottom of that. General Allenby was the last one to do battle there but General Jesus will be the last one and the only bloodshed will be theirs not his. He's already shed his. Thank thank the Lord for that. All right. Let's see. Uh, Let's go to... um, well, the next one, what will happen in the battle, Revelation 19, 20, uh, as already stated here, uh, Christ will cast the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. We didn't get far enough to read that, but that is an important note. These would-be deities will, will be exposed for the fakes they really are. <clears throat> what then will happen to Satan? Well, Satan will be cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Isn't that good news? I mean, just think about it. You think we'll be able to be good with him in the bottomless pit? And I know you want me to explain to you how it can be bottomless, don't you? I don't know. It's sort of like these checks that are in the mail. I'm going to get mine in May. (laughs) They're coming out of a bottomless reservoir of money, currency, and, and wealth, and liquidity, and so forth. I don't know how that happens, so... I guess one is as mysterious as the other. And then um, what will happen or who will reign with Christ and how long will the reign continue? That's the last question we have here on page 72. Well, the fact of the matter is the tribulation saints will be there. And um, also the, the nations will be along to, to uh, establish his kingdom. And he'll set up the positions of authority and so forth. And... Um, um, you know, there's just the church and the saints that are, that are going to be resurrected at that point in time. It's going to be uh, something beyond our, our uh, ability to conceive now. A thousand years in Eden. No weeds in your garden. Um, no no uh, wire grass. Can you imagine that? Huh? See, I got a better... See, I shoot higher than that. I don't have to mow nothing. I don't care what grows. You know, that's, that's heaven to me. But the lion will lay down with the lamb. And the only thing that will still have the curse will be the serpent. The serpent will still be crawling and it's still legal to kill him. Okay. Now, remember a few weeks ago, I think Isaac covered this, the first century Jews thought that the first and second comings of Christ were basically the same event, that he just was, would come one time and he would accomplish all of this. Mostly because Jesus didn't free the nation of Israel from Rome. Uh, they rejected that and they missed the church age altogether. They, they didn't get any part of that. But... Uh, 
as we think about the, the uh, disappearing of Christ and the fact that He's going to come again, it is an interesting thing uh, to consider uh, what's going to happen at the glorious appearing concerning some of the Jews. Now, I, I don't have a great deal more to, to share on this, except I want to say this. A lot of what I've just read to you, how he comes and every eye will behold him and he's coming out of the east and all of the things that he's going to do. A lot of this fits into that first coming. It sort of dovetails together. So it's necessary that it's all in there together. Turn with me please to Matthew 27. And this is the last passage we're going to consider this evening. Jesus has been apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane. They think they have uh, pulled off a coup that only cost 30 pieces of silver to one of his former disciples. But it was, the whole thing was planned. Nobody could take him until it was time for him to be crucified. And so here he's been apprehended. He's been taken off by a force of people that would uh, engage in a small war just for one man. The disciples, as predicted, have scattered. And they've all managed to run like scared little dogs. Not just Peter, all of them. He makes an appearance in six different tribunals or courtrooms. Most of which took place during the darkness of night, which is illegal. Courts were not convened at night. But during one of his encounters before the high priest, and the high priest was the big daddy, religiously speaking, the high priest in um, Matthew 27, I'm sorry, 26, 26, and verse number 62, it's a long chapter, the high priest arose and said to him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. You know, if they'd had any spiritual insight, they would have known who he was. They knew he had raised the dead. That would be enough for me to believe in him. But the scripture says Jesus answered in verse 64. And he said to the high priest. Thou hast said. It's just like you say. Nevertheless I say unto you. Hereafter shall you see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power. And this is the last part. Coming in the clouds of heaven. It is imperative that he come in the clouds of heaven. Why? To fulfill his statement here. So that these people, though they are generations and centuries removed from the people who sat in judgment on him that day, but in the days of, of uh, Jesus' second coming, those who occupy the same spaces, the Jews of our day, so to speak, they will recognize him for who he is. Now, you don't have to turn there, but Zechariah 13, verse 6. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And he shall answer, 
those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Got them from you. You did it to me. And isn't it interesting that Zechariah was motivated by God to use a word that does not mean scars. You can't, you can't translate it as scars. Wounds means, yeah, if you have a wound, you have a flesh cut. One that's relatively recent. Something that hasn't closed up yet. A wound. Something that would be bandaged. If you and I were to be able to part heaven right now and look beyond this roof and into the portals of heaven and see Jesus seated at the right hand of God Almighty, if we were able to do that, you would probably see him. And you, if you looked at his hands, you would notice that he has two wounds right where the bone separates here, the back of the wrist. The wrist was considered part of the hand in the old world anatomy. So just where the bones split and separate, that's where the nail was driven. The palm wouldn't support the weight of the body. It would pull out. And he would have holes in his feet and he would have a hole in his side underneath his heart. Now, and we've gone through this before. With God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. That being the case, Jesus has only been there a little over two days two days, 2,000 years. When he comes back, they'll still be fresh. And I suspect, and I submit to you, that probably 10,000 years from now, they'll still look the same to remind all of us. Not how bad we were. He wouldn't do that. We would do that to each other. But to remind you and me how much he loved us. This is how much he loved us. To go to Calvary. And with that said, isn't that worth some service this week that we talk it up for our Lord in a community, in a culture that is so pathetically blind and lost and looking for something that will give them something in just about every corner of this life experience. And they haven't found it yet because it cannot be found here horizontally. It's found here vertically. It's Jesus. And we need to be telling them about it. Because one of these days is going to be the end of the program. One of these days we'll have our last invitation. One of these days we'll have our last special. We'll be leaving here. We'll be going home. And only what's done for Christ will last. Let's stand for a word of prayer, shall we?